Shabbat Shalom, everyone. I want to ask uh, everyone a few questions, and just by show of hands, I want to hear your thoughts and your answers. Don't want to hear them literally, just want to see them with your expression of your hands. Raise your hand if you feel a little bit more worried than you have in, let's say, the past few years or even the past few decades about being Jewish and about the crosshairs that Israel has been under and about existential threats to the Jewish people. Has this been more worrisome to you in the last, let's say, 18 months than in the past five years? Raise your hand high and proud if you think so. Raise your hand if you think it's been exactly the same as it was five years ago. So clearly, much higher in the first category. When you raise your hand, this doesn't work for me because I can't see. You've got to raise it with confidence and pride. Okay? Uh, another question for you. Just a few quick surveys. Raise your hand high and proud if you think that the Arab Spring is good for the state of Israel. One, two. Okay, a handful. That's why I want you to raise them high, because there could be 20 and you're going like this, I can't see. How many of you think that the Arab Spring is bad for the state of Israel? Okay, overwhelming majority. How many of you think when it comes to issues of Iran that we are best served by handling Iran diplomatically and with sanctions? Raise your hand high and proud. And how many of you think that we're best served by a military action? Again, an overwhelming majority. Okay, good. How many of you think, changing gears a little bit, that what's happening or what has happened in the Occupy Wall Street movement, and in particular in Zuccotti Park, that that is a fair expression and that we should celebrate that occupation of occupying Wall Street? Raise your hand high and proud. And how many of you think it's totally unfair and most of the people who are there don't understand why they're protesting and what they're doing is wrong? Interesting, much more split, closer to something down the middle. How many of you think, going back to Iran for a second, there's a purpose to all of this. How many of you think, going back to Iran for a second, that we should consider sanctions, even though those sanctions that are going to benefit Israel and Europe will probably cause gas prices to go up at least a dollar to two dollars around our country, and for that matter, around the world? and at the same time could topple a very, very shaky economy throughout Europe. How many still think that the sanctions in Iran are worth it? Raise your hand. And how many think that because of what's going on economically in Europe and the cost of gas, that we shouldn't put those sanctions in with those really biting pieces because we can't afford right now to have gas go higher and we can't afford right now to topple the whole European economic infrastructure? Raise your hand high and proud. Just one or two. Okay, um, I, have, uh, I have two more for you, okay? Actually, just one more, because one we did before. I don't want you to raise your hand on this one, because I don't want anyone to look at another and to make any accusations. But I want you to think in your, in your heart whether you would raise your hand. How many of you currently think that the current administration is good for Israel? Don't raise your hand if you think it. And how many of you currently think that the administration that we have in office is bad for Israel? Don't, don't raise your hands. Just want you to think about it. 
And I can ask the exact same question of how many of you think that the administration in Israel right now, the Netanyahu government, is good for Israel? And how many of you think it's not good for Israel? You all have your answers in your mind from these? The reason I started off with these questions is because I think, in my mind, I have been struggling in a very significant way with why this is a worrisome and troublesome time for me as someone who loves Israel and loves Judaism and why I feel a little bit more worried and more confused. To be honest with you, for us as Jews to be worried is redundant. Jews always worry. And to say that this is a more worrisome time than another time for me doesn't feel like the case. There's always some existential threat to the Jewish people. This one is just a different flavor, and it doesn't cause me any more palpitation in my heart or fear in my feet. But I'm starting to scratch at the surface of why I think this is such a challenging and difficult and worrisome time for me as a Jew. And it's for what was just demonstrated in this room in the last three minutes. Historically, Jews have galvanized and come around particular topics, particular themes, and particular people that always unified them and brought them together. Those moments of unification, of being galvanized, of being one, was something that served as an absolute common denominator amongst our people. That even in the midst of dissent, of disagreement, of disaccord, we always worked on a few projects in harmony. And that always brought us to be one. But what we're noticing today, and perhaps we're noticing it as a result of some of the things that we've achieved and done so well at, is that we indeed are not necessarily galvanizing ourselves and centralizing ourselves around central themes like we used to. A few generations ago, it was considered anything but uncommon, anything but common, rather, for people to be of the Jewish faith and to vote anything but Democrat, meaning most Jews historically voted democratically, that that was in alignment with our values and our belief system. And today, we see that that is wildly different. We see that many Jews vote Republicans and many Jews vote for Democrats. And the reason why that's the case has to do with a perceived view for Israel and support for Israel and perceived views for what's in people's personal interests, whether they're economic interests, social interests, whatever else it might be, that helps make the choice. But what we notice is we're not all on the same page when it comes to that issue. When it comes to issues that we have a vote in, a say in, a right in, we find more and more that we are people that are much more divided as opposed to united. And we can find fewer and fewer instances today that we are all about the same thing. There were times in our history where we were all about one thing, whether it was the absolute right for Israel to be, whether it was the absolute right of freedom for people in Israel, or whether it was the absolute right 
of Jews to have a safe haven. When there was a war in 1967, almost every person who was of the Jewish faith supported Israel's right in that war. And again in 1973, during the Yom Kippur War, we did the same. But today, when Israel finds itself in conflict, we are a people divided. Some say it's an excessive force. Some say we don't need to be in Gaza. Some say we should leave the West Bank. And others say it's our right. If we look today at conversations happening throughout Israel, we see those very same divisions. And I can list them for you chapter and verse. Do we give back the land to the West Bank so that we can have a two-state solution? Or do we keep it? Have that conversation in Israel with any two shopkeepers and you're going to get at least two different answers. Have the conversation of whether we were right in our unilateral withdrawal. Have the conversation whether we should initiate peace talks. Whether we should be the ones that hold forth the greatest uh, olive branch and moving that process along. Have that same conversation here in Kiddush about any one of these topics and you'll see a whole array of answers. There is less and less of a unifying common denominator amongst our people. And that has created more and more of a challenge for us. That challenge is what's breaking our core and making it more challenging for us each and every day to be one people. About two years ago, someone by the name of Peter Beinart wrote an article questioning whether or not people who are connected to Israel are still feeling the same connectivity in the next generation to come. Meaning my generation and some of the generations older than mine were all born into an absolute, unquestionable love for Israel. But today, we have people who feel no connectivity to the state, even though they could be Jewish, and some might even be observantly Jewish, very identified Jewish. What does that mean? It means that Today, when people are questioning whether or not we should give back land for peace, whether we should, whether or not the West Bank is part of Israel or should be part of the Palestinian state, whether we should initiate, whether we should initiate the peace process or wait for the peace process to come to us, whether the administration is supportive of Israel or the administration is hurtful of Israel, whether the sanctions are going to be the right move or it's just a buying of time until we do a military action. These are all just a smattering of examples that really signify for us a lack of one issue, and that is unity. What is the one issue that all Jewish people are in agreement on today, that all are in accord over today? We had that 25 years ago. We don't today. I want to give you just a couple of examples of places where we actually did come together and where we saw a difference and in a case where we didn't. One case where there was absolute unity in Israel had to do with the case of Gilad Shalit. Now, it's true there was an absolute unity on whether he should be released at which means, whether he should be negotiated for a thousand terrorists, or whether, indeed, he should be traded, or whether there should be some uh, special attack force that goes in and tries to capture him. That the country was absolutely divided on, and our conversations on those matters were divided too. But where there was absolute unity on behalf of all the Israeli people, and most people who loved Judaism and Israel, was a sense of unity and that he was unfairly abducted and he deserved to be released. That is where there was a sense of unity. 
that he was indeed entitled to be seen by the International Red Cross. That sense of unity, and in particular, that one name that we all could utter, Gilad Shalit, and all could know instantly by the utterance of that name what was meant by it, what was inferred by it, was for us, indeed, a moment of unity. The last time we had such unity, I would argue, was in the late 70s and early 80s with one other name. And that name was Anatoly Sharansky. Because when we said the word Anatoly Sharansky, we all thought what you're probably thinking in your mind right now, Soviet refuseniks. And the idea that there were people in the Soviet Union, Jews, who were denied their right to celebrate their religion. And what happened when we were making the case as a people around the world, and in particular in the United States and Israel, for people like Anatoly Sharansky to be free? We marched in Washington. We wore bracelets on our arm. We twinned our B'nai Mitzvah services. And we all came together and we all heard one name. Last week I went to a lecture called about Iran 180, which was a request for Iran to turn 180 degrees into human rights violations. And there a professor named David Keyes from L.A. gave a uh, very interesting story that he learned as he was an intern for Natan Sharansky after he came to Israel. He said that when Gorbachev first came to the United States, he was an agriculture minister. And his first visit was to Houston, Texas. And he came to talk about corn and crops. And everywhere he went, from his hotel room, to his car, to his airport, everywhere, there were signs and protesters everywhere that said, Free Anatoly Sharansky. Now, Gorbachev recalls he never heard of the name Sharansky before in his life. But that as he continued to make frequent and subsequent visits to the United States, all he heard and all he saw were signs and protests everywhere, freeing Anatoly Sharansky. So he went back to Russia and he learned about Anatoly Sharansky and why it was he was imprisoned. And he realized that if he wanted to make any further steps forward on behalf of relationships with people outside of Russia, that the freeing of Anatoly Sharansky would be a huge piece of capital to move the process forward. And that, in his subsequent interviews after he stepped down as the head of the former Soviet Union, was the reason why Gorbachev released Sharansky and why Sharansky was then able to go over, you know, from East Berlin to West Berlin and go to Israel. It's exactly what happened. It's exactly how he was freed. But what made us all one is that when we were protesting in Washington and 250,000 people flew to D.C. for the day, or when we wore the bracelets on our arms, or we twinned our B'nai Mitzvah, or we all took part of these activities that congregations did across the world, we didn't do it only for Anatoly Sharansky. We did it for Anatoly Sharansky and all of those other people he represented. But it gave us one thing to unite around. There was another Soviet dissident at the same time as Sharansky, who went on a hunger strike in prison, who has actually done more for trying to bring awareness for human rights violations than Sharansky did, and Sharansky's the first to admit that. His name was Marchenko. But the problem was, Marchenko did not have any community around him saying his name. There wasn't an idea that behind this person's name is something wrong going on. He was just another prisoner participating in another activity. But there were not a group of people who were protesting and raising flags and signs on his behalf.
That is what led to Marchenko's death in prison from a self-imposed three-month hunger strike. He died. He's in a nameless grave somewhere in Russia. And he has very little recognition even today. Sharansky says that Marchenko was one who actually furthered the notion of what it means to be a part of a bigger cause than us. But Sharansky was the fortunate one who was set free. I share all this with you today because as I start to scratch the surface of what it is that worries me in being a Jew, what it is that worries me at this time more than other, it's not about Iran and a nuclear weapon, although that worries me. It's not about our administration and whether they're supportive or not supportive, or whether the next administration will be more supportive or less supportive, because both of those questions, at times, worry me. It's not about whether or not these sanctions and bringing our gas prices are going to bring us into the crosshairs more. While that worries me, that doesn't have me up at night. What has me up at night is that we as the Jewish people are more divided than ever. There are people in our midst that love and celebrate Israel and people in our midst who see no need for the state of Israel. There are people in our midst who feel a sense of unifying force and people in our midst who see no common bond between us, not even DNA. That, to me, is our biggest fear that lies in front of us. Sharansky likes to tell the story that happened to him when he was in Israel. And I'll close with this story because I think it represents very well what some of our challenges are that I'm hoping to bring to the surface with you today. He tells the story of walking down the streets when there's some great debate going on in Israel. I think at the time it had to do with issues of religious pluralism and whether or not there should be separate sides of sidewalks and driving in certain areas and certain places in Jerusalem. And great debates were happening on the streets as to whether this was acceptable or not acceptable and we should appreciate people's different levels of observance. Sharansky's walking down the street to pick up challahs on a Friday afternoon for his family. This is way after his release. Someone sees him, they recognize him, and they stop him at a red light as he's walking. And they say, Mr. Sharansky, things were much better for the Jews when you were in prison. And then they walked away. He looked at him, crazy-eyed, laughed, and went home. But what Sharansky realized is that when he was in prison... It gave us all one thing to be behind and to be supportive of. Today, that's our biggest challenge. I leave you with that very question. What is it that we all unquestionably stand behind, that we all are in support of, that we all are on the same page on? What is that one thing? Because without it, it might cause us such divide that we ravel to a place where we can't unify together. And for me, that's the biggest existential threat of all. We continue our